don't know if you've heard, but you know, if you ever, if you ever do your own taxes, you know how difficult it can be trying to figure everything out, you know, all the deductions and all that stuff. And I heard the other day that the IRS is coming out with a new form next year. Have you heard that? It's called a 1040 simple. It's got four lines on it. First line says, what was your income for the year? Second line says, what was your expenses for the year? And the third line says, how much do you have left? And the fourth line says, send it in. All right, that would be very simple, right? I'm sure the government would love to have all your money. I mean, they seem to take it all the way, in, all anyways, right? That seems sometimes that's all we're living for, is to pay the government. All right, well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know we began a study a couple of weeks ago on the Bible and whether we can trust what we read in the Bible, whether we can know that it is from God, whether we can know that it is the truth that we're reading that is inspired from the Holy Spirit. And we can do that. We can. The answer to that is yes, emphatically yes. And we went over some of the reasons for that. Last week we talked about the Old Testament. We talked about the canonicity of the Old Testament, which is just another word for the standard, the rule that is accepted by most folks, that this, this is the, the, uh, the standard of Scripture. This is the Scripture that we know to be from God. And we examined that in the Old Testament last week and uh, looked at um, how most folks in Christendom today will accept the Old Testament as we see it uh, to be the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament. We talked a little bit about how the Jews had a different arrangement of, of, of the Old Testament or what they call the Hebrew Bible and how uh, Jesus, we can see where Jesus quoted from that scripture, and how he quoted from each section of it back in the day, and that kind of helps us to understand that he approved of it. He was stating in his words that it is scripture from God, that it is inspired, that it's something that we can rely on for our instruction and, our, and for doctrine. This week we're going to look a little bit, we're going to look now at the canonicity of the New Testament. We're going to see, are these books that we have in our New Testament today valid? Are they something that we can rely on for truth, for the inspiration of God? And of course, if you know, we have 27 books that are viewed as Scripture, and that this would be true for both Catholic and Protestant, right? All those who are in Christendom today, you might say, accept these 27 books as Scripture. The reason we say that is last week we talked about in the Old Testament, you do have the Apocrypha books that are added not all of them, but some of them are added to the Catholic Bible, and they are accepted in some areas. But as far as the New Testament goes, everyone pretty much accepts these 27 books that we have in our, our uh, New Testament canon. And, of course, we know a lot of them, they're simply letters from the apostles, right, or others. They're simply things that were written to the churches, particularly from Paul and Peter, but all, we have most of it from Paul, that are written to help them understand Doctrine, help them understand how they are to live their lives, help them understand the truth about uh, Jesus Christ. So, well, most of this is accepted, but you may not know this, but there are many other books that have been written uh, around the time of Christ and since the time of Christ, over, over 300 or so that, there are, that are still around today. And some at times have tried to say these should be part of the New Testament canon. Uh, the early church... Um, you know, some of the folks in the early church even tried to accept them at times. But over a period of time, they've never been accepted fully by the church. So how do we know what we have today? What basis do we have to say 
that these books are from God. Books that we have in the New Testament are from God. Well, first and foremost, the majority of these are written by apostles. Okay, the apostles. We have the 12 apostles. We know them, right? These are the men that, God, that Jesus chose uh, to follow him who were there to begin the mission after he ascended back into heaven. Of course, we know how on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fell upon them, and they were able to speak in languages that all those around could hear, right? And if you turn over to Acts chapter 2, I want to read something from that chapter to talk about the apostles and what they were doing and how they were going about their business. And beginning in chapter 2 and verse 40, it says, And with many other words... He testified and exhorted them. Of course, this is Peter in his sermon, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So this is the day of Pentecost. This is when Peter and the other apostles are preaching. And Peter's having, and and folks are believing, and they're being converted and becoming Christians. And then in verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So here we have a verse that says they continued to listen to what the apostles were saying, what the apostles were preaching. And as we go through this, we're going to see they also paid attention to what the apostles were writing. Okay, so we have that from Acts 2. In fact, let's turn over to 2 Peter. Now we're going to jump around in Scripture a little bit today because I want you to see how this works out. You know, when we're reading scripture, when we're studying a book, we don't necessarily notice these little things, right? But that's when you go through and you see all this, you can understand where this all comes from, right? Turn to 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 3. Let's read something from there, right at the beginning of that uh, chapter. Verse 20 says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, who is us? Peter and the apostles. Who The commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the Father fell asleep, all things continue as they were at the beginning of creation. So here we have Peter writing in his second letter there, that you can believe on what the apostles are writing. As the prophets did in the past, now the writing from the apostles is what you need to hear and believe in and know is from God. Interesting how Peter writes that, but if you're going to believe the scripture, you've got to believe that, right? If you're going to believe all scripture is inspired, and that's the only way you can really believe it, right? I mean, if you're going to say, well, it's not all inspired, well, then what part is not inspired? What part is not right? What part is not true? How do you know if it's not all inspired, right? It has to be. They also received the word as the word of God. That's an interesting statement. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians there, and let's read that passage. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. And uh, get over there. Verse 13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, the apostles, or Paul, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 
No, he's saying, you that received our word understood this to be the word of God. So he's making a statement. When we write these letters, you know it's from God. We know it's from God. Therefore, it is inspired as true. Now, you can say, well, he can just say that, right? Anybody can say, yeah, we received the word of God. But these folks were understanding it. And he also goes on to say, it's, making, it's working in you. It's causing your life to change. It's causing you to walk as a disciple, right? He's causing you to be a person who lives like Jesus Christ, whom we're bringing the word of to you. Interesting how that comes about, right? They're seeing proof of what he's saying there. Probably similar to how you've seen some changes in your life, perhaps. Remember back to when you were converted, when you first became a Christian. Some of you say, well, I'm, I've been a Christian all my life. Well, okay, and that's fine. But there's some here today that have not been that way. And I would imagine they could tell you a good story about how things changed in their life. Started studying the Bible. Started reading the Word. In fact, I bet some of you grew up in the church, didn't start studying the Bible maybe until just a few years ago. I bet a lot of you, well, maybe not a lot, but some of you could say that, right? In fact, you didn't really see a change in your life maybe until just a few years ago, even though you said you were a Christian. The Word will cause something to happen in your life, whether you believe it or not. And that's what Paul is saying to those in Thessalonica. You received the word from us, notice of God, and your lives are changed. You have a work in you now. Something is going on in your life because of what you're hearing from us. Isn't that fabulous? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Paul also did some, uh, something else here that's very interesting. It can help us to make sure to understand this is from God. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And let's read something there. 1 Timothy chapter 5. <clears throat> and uh, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Notice what Paul says here. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Two statements he makes from Scripture. Paul's quoting Scripture there, right? Where does that come from? The second part there, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. And let's look at something there. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Paul says, as was in the scriptures, well, when we talked last week about Jesus quoting scripture from the Old Testament, we said that, you know, that the New Testament canon had not been established yet in writing, right? That came after him. There was nothing for him to quote from the New Testament. But here we have Paul doing it. Paul in his writing is quoting from the New Testament, thereby validating the book of Luke as being from God. Wow! That's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? You wouldn't think of that, but Paul is writing, he's quoting from Scripture, he's putting in his letter. So imagine those who are hearing this. 
they've probably heard of Luke or been reading it or read it read to them, and they could go back and see, well, Paul's validating what the writer Luke said about Jesus. What Jesus said. Interesting, right? So here we have a proof that Paul is making in the Scripture. Isn't it interesting how when you really study things, God has provided answers to your questions, right? How can we trust the New Testament? Well, oh, I didn't notice that verse before. I didn't know that he quoted the New Testament in his letter, therefore making it from God. If Paul's letter is from God, then Luke's got to be from God, right? Interesting, right? What else? 2 Peter, uh, go best go back over to 2 Peter. Should have told you to stay there. Or keep mar put a marker in there. 2 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> and let's go down to uh, verse 14. Peter says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him as written to you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, what did he say? Also was our beloved brother Paul. He's referring to Paul. A lot of folks didn't say, wanted to say Paul was not an apostle, right? Remember that? How in Galatians, the Judaizing teachers were saying, Paul, he's just a guy. He's not an apostle. He wasn't there. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Here's Peter referring to Paul's writings as scripture. Another validation right there of the New Testament. Again, if you're going to believe Peter is from God, and if you believe the apostles are from God, you've got to believe Peter, right? He's saying Paul is also from God. His writings are inspired of the Spirit. Interesting how they complement each other, isn't it? One more. Turn over to Colossians 4. I know we're jumping around here, but I want you to see these. In fact, this is something that you might need to use one day when speaking with someone who is not a believer. How do you prove? Of course, they can say, well, guys can write anything. Well, these guys are writing things, but not colluding. You think Peter went, hey, Paul, I'm going to write in my letter if you're writing your letter that this is from God. You think they did that? Turn over to Colossians chapter 4 there, verse 16. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it's also read in, all, in the churches of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. These letters were passed around to all the churches. That's what Paul wanted. That's what Peter wanted. They were not to be read in one place. They were be, to be considered scripture from God, inspired by the Spirit, to be read to all the churches. Interesting, all right? that that's going on. These are being accepted in each of the churches as scripture, as a, a doctrine, a way to know what God wants from their lives and understand what's to be done. So the criteria for accepting a book in the New Testament canon, first and foremost, was it had to be written by an apostle, those who uh, had been with God at the beginning. We have many that are Matthew, tax collector, John, apostle that disciple that Jesus loved 
Peter and Paul, their letters, right? And then we also have some who are not necessarily written by an apostle, but were written by some who were in close association with apostles, knew them, knew the teaching, understood the doctrine. Of course, we have the Gospel of Mark. It's John Mark, right? The young man whose house they were waiting for Peter in, remember? His mother's house. And then John Mark, who traveled with Barnabas, who left at some time, and Paul, remember, got a little fired up about it. So much so that the next missionary journey, him and Barnabas kind of butted heads a little bit because Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark, and Paul said, I don't think so. But then later, we read that Paul said, bring John Mark to me because he's helpful. Isn't it interesting? See how that plays out? You don't study that necessarily at one time, but here we see how the gospel was working in John Mark's life. He heard it from the apostles. He wanted to do what was right. He went out on a missionary journey. For whatever reason, he got scared or he got tired or whatever. He went home. He said, I've had enough. So much so that Paul didn't think too much of him after that. But then later, we read that Paul thinks he can be helpful to him. Something changed again in his life. We can see that from the writings. We see the gospel being preached to John Mark transforming his life. Yeah, he's not perfect. He stumbled. There's times when he was down. Perhaps he wasn't living the life he should be. But by the end, he is a faithful worker in the kingdom. We can see that. And we have a gospel written by him. By the way, which we're going to start studying in August. So I think that'll be great. John Mark, um, who's the others? Luke, of course, Luke. We know the great physician who was traveling with, the, uh, with Paul and the apostles, right? He wrote Acts. He wrote Luke, the gospel. He heard the lessons. He perhaps was around when Jesus was, he probably heard straight from Jesus. Don't know that for sure, but he was probably around as a disciple. But he also heard the doctrine of the apostles, and he was able to put that down in the gospel. And, of course, James and Jude, who were not apostles, but we know those bro were brothers of Jesus. They're supposedly were brothers of Jesus. James becoming a very prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem in the first century. So these guys all wrote books that we can rely on, books that were associated with apostles or from the apostles. That's the criteria. The writing had to be apostolic, right, showing evidence of inspiration, and when these apostolic writings were considered a scripture, they were read publicly. Uh, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's read something from that. <clears throat> this is Paul again writing right at the end of that letter, 1 Thessalonians. Let's go on to verse 25. He says, Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. What a verse. Have this letter read to all the holy brethren. What does that mean? Who are the holy brethren? Those who have been sanctified, set apart, saved, inherited, have received an inheritance as a child of God who are waiting for their great reward and are working, serving. As part of the church there in Thessalonica, 
which is part of the kingdom of heaven, where God and Je where Jesus is reigning, the right hand of God. What a powerful statement! We read in that verse, you just think he he's just signing off, you know, no big deal. He's just saying sincerely, Paul, or you know, thanks, or or in Christ. No, what he's saying there is, this is from God. This is an inspired letter. Read it to all those who are being sanctified. I want this read as scripture. That's what he's saying right there. Interesting concept, right? We know that they were circulated around, and we just read that in Colossians 4. We know that copies were collected. We read about that in 2 Peter 3. And turn over to 1 Timothy 5 again, and let's read a little more from that letter. Well, actually, we did read this already. Verse 18, for the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. It was, in other words, what we're saying is these letters quoted other writings. Right? They were able to understand who was who by what was written in these letters. So the books accepted as canon by all Christians included the 27 books of our New Testament. Most books were acknowledged from the very beginning in the first century. Uh, as they were written, the letters and so forth. Some books uh, were disputed at first. Hebrews, James, Second and Second Peter, and Second and Third John, Jude, and Revelation. Some didn't think these should be part of the canon, but that was changed over time. And they're all, thus, all profession Christians to this day pretty much believe that the twenty-seven books of the New Testament are valid, part of that canon, part of that standard. Right? As I mentioned before, though, there are a lot of other books, a lot of things that have been written that we don't include in the New Testament canon. This is a word that you probably never heard before, but it's something called the pseudepigrapha, all right? And it's, a, it's basically a set of books that are basically called false writings, all right? Things that are written that are not true. There's more than 50 of them that are accounts of Christ or, quote, pertain to be gospels. The more well-known, and you might have heard of some of these, if you've ever watched any documentary on TV about the Bible or anything, you've probably heard some of these mentioned. The Gospel of Thomas, the disciple. There's one called the Gospel of Peter. There's a Gospel of the Hebrews. Uh, there's the Proto-Evangelism of James. And these are all out there. Their value is limited, but they do illustrate some form of teaching about Jesus. And a lot of it has some of the heretical teachings that were going on around the time of the first century. You may have heard of uh, the Gnostics. That was a problem, particularly in the, uh, in the region of, well, what's uh, uh, Turkey and Greece and all that area now. I don't know if you know anything about Gnosticism. It's kind of hard to explain, but there was the, that's the idea that man is, can know God simply through knowledge. It's not necessarily anything that has to be revealed to him, and the world is corrupt and evil, and man can be saved through his knowledge of God. Like he, and in fact, some, I think, I don't know, some of you have heard of existentialism, that we, we exist because we can realize we exist. Kind of a, it's always seemed to me a little bit of a circular argument, you know, but that's what they're saying, is that we can know who, if we know of God in our mind, then we're, we, can, we can know God. That's how we become knowing of God. Kind of like the Affleck commercial, Yogi Berra, you know. Because when you need cats, that's when you really need it, and that's when you know you got to have it, right? Anyways, 
I know I'm just confused the more I am too. But that's some of the things that had crept into the church in areas, and we have writing some of these letters are refuting some of that, right? That no, Christ came. He did something on our behalf. It's not that we just know who God is or we can understand him through our mind or our spirit, but he did something outwardly to save us, and we have to understand that. These things had crept in. Some of these writings have some of that uh, bent to them, right? Some of them have that Gnostic view of things. And so no one would consider them to be true, uh, true gospels or true books about Jesus Christ. Uh, in other words, these folks were writing things most likely to add to what we have in the Scripture, add to what New Testament is talking about, add to the true life of Jesus Christ. have to be careful with that. These books are out there. You can read them. I'm sure you go online and Google them and start reading right off. But you've got to be careful what you're reading on some of those because they are considered to be false by pretty much all uh, that, are, that consider the canon of the New Testament. They were mainly produced, as I mentioned, by heretical groups. They uh, exaggerate or have mythical folklore in them. Uh, you'll, see thing, you'll read things about mysticism in them. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know we, we see things all the time about spirits and ghosts and whatever, you know, and people believing that uh, their house is haunted by a ghost or whatever, and I don't know, maybe somebody in here you kind of think that. You'll read about that a lot in this stuff, right? I mean about that a lot. Have to be careful what you're looking at. <coughs> Therefore, their historical con connection to the apostles is really suspect. It's really not something that we can say came from them. Similar to the pseudepigrapha is what we would also call the uh, Apocrypha, or the New Testament Apocrypha. Last week we mentioned the Old Testament Apocrypha, the books that are written in that intertestamental period from about 400 B.C. to the time of Christ. We also have what would be considered a New Testament Apocrypha. And these are books that have been writ accepted at times by Christians, uh, have, appeared, have appeared in collections of, of Scripture at times or in translations, and, but never accepted in a general sense, never accepted as part of the New Testament canon by, uh, in a general uh, Christian, Christian way, right? And these include, and they're, they're actually in your outline here. I'll, I'll read through these. And you've probably heard of some of these as well. Uh, the Epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas, the Epistle to the Corinthians. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, the Ancient Homily, are also known as the Second Epistle of Clement, Clement of Rome to the Corinthians. The Shepherd of Hamas, uh, the Didact, also known as the Teaching of the Twelve. The Apocalypse of Peter, the Acts of Paul and Theseia, the Gospel according to the Hebrews. I've heard of that one. I haven't read through it, but I've heard of it. The Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, the Seven Epistles of Ignatius. This would be considered some of the, uh, what's considered the New Testament Apocrypha, extra writings that would not be considered part of the canon. These would be considered more valuable, pretty much, than the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, we talked last week about how the Old Testament Apocrypha some is accepted, particularly in the Catholic Bible, but we can't attribute those to be inspired, but you can get some interesting stuff by reading them. I mean, there are historical accounts, uh, historical in the way that the writers of the Old Testament wrote history, right? It's not necessarily something that's chronological, not necessarily something that's just accurate to the letter. It's more of a poetic type of thing, you know, but you can understand some things that were going on during that time. The same way with the New Testament Apocrypha. You can read some of these books 
and understand some things that were going on after the first century, all the way up even to the third and fourth century. Right? How the uh, Christians were being dealt with, how they were uh, working in the kingdom, how they were going out and spreading the gospel. If you've ever studied history, you know what happened in 70 AD, right? Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, causing all the Jews to be spread, right? The great diaspora. No longer having a land of their own until, what was it, 1948, I believe, after World War II, when the Allies got together and established Israel as a nation on its own, and a lot of Jews came back home. We know about Israel today, and there's a great conflict going on there all the time between those Jews and the Arabs and the Muslims of the world. That's another study. Point being, we can glean a lot about the first century, first three or four centuries, actually, by reading some of these books. Again, remembering that these would not be considered to be inspired, right? These would not be considered to be from the apostles. These would not be considered to be written by anybody that was ever associated with the apostles. But there might be something that you could take and read and know something about the way things were going on at the beginning. There's no major church council, no, as I mentioned, no New Testament collection that would include them as inspired books, but they're good to read. And some had acceptance because they actually attached them themselves to some books in the canon uh, or alleged, alleged that they had apostolic authorship. For instance, the Acts of Paul, right? would allege that that comes from Paul, this is about Paul, but there's no evidence of that. So, interesting concept. Mainly we need to understand that we have the canon of Scripture that we need, right? Talked about this a little bit last week, and they go, well, what's the big deal? Well, if we're going to believe the Bible is inspired of God, we need to have a foundation that we can understand to prove that, right? I mean, if you're out speaking to someone about the Bible... You know, well, uh, what, are, what are you going to say when they just say, eh, that's just some stuff some guys wrote? You know, that was back in the Bronze Age when some dudes just wrote some stuff down. No, we can have some evidence. We can have some understanding. And we may need to explain that to some so they can understand that we have the Word of God revealed unto us. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to read a couple of scriptures there. One of the things the Hebrew writer uh, is dealing with is the fact that those Christians, that, and this is, of course, Hebrew writers writing to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, they're going back, right? They're back, going back to trying to keep the traditions of the Jews or keeping the old law or the uh, rabbinical practices or the Levitical practices of the high priest and the sacrifice and all that. And the Hebrew writer is pointing out to them, New, don't need that anymore. We now have Jesus Christ, who is the greater sacrifice, the ultimate high priest. We don't need the practices of the Levites or the rabbis anymore. We have Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate thing the Hebrew writer is trying to say. And look what he says in verse 1. He says, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets. So he's acknowledging that there was a time of the prophets that was needed so that men could know who God was and what he was about and what he wanted and about his law and his character. 
And then verse 2 says, Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. After the prophets, Jesus Christ. Now this Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb who was led to the slaughter, the ultimate high priest. We don't need anything that was in the past. Yes, we have the law. We know how we are to live. We know the character of God from what he has revealed to us in the law through his prophets. But now we have Jesus Christ, and therefore through him we have salvation. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's read what Paul says here. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. What's Paul saying to the church there? If you think you're a prophet or something, no. The commandments have been written down in Scripture. We now have the canon of Scripture that we need to know God. Don't need the prophets anymore. A lot of their sayings and visions are written down for us, of course. We can read about them in the Scripture. We have the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, and that's all we need. The record of God's revelation is now contained in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. And we can trust that, right? The world's going to tell you, nah, you know, who are you? What, you're an idiot for believing something like that. I mean, you're, you're reading stuff that was written 2,000 years ago. Come on, man. That's when they believed the earth was flat. That's when they thought there were monsters in the sea, right? You ever heard something like that? No, these guys are writing because they are inspired of God. And we can prove it. Still going to have people that ain't going to believe. Still going to have people that tell you you're an idiot. But we can have confidence that we know what we have is from God. Therefore, as the end of John we read, we can have abundant life. The world says you're dumb. You're stupid. You're missing out. There's a lot of stuff. A lot of fun stuff to do out there that you're missing out on. I'm living the abundant life because I have the Word of God. I believe in the Creator of the universe, and I believe He sent His Son so that I can have a hope of eternity. And man, I'm looking forward to that day, the great joy that I'm going to get from that. Of course, this does raise questions, right? It, this belief often raises questions. How do we know for sure that the Bible is inspired of God? Well, I read a few things here. How can we even understand the Bible? Can we really understand what God is telling us in the Bible? Is the Bible truly all-inspired, all-sufficient? We're going to study those. We're going to look at those over the next few weeks. I hope you'll be here. I think we'll continue to have a good study. I always love to study this. I know we're not doing a textual study so much here. But this, I hope, will help to equip you 
in your service, in your work, and you're speaking to others about your faith in Jesus Christ. All right. Thanks for being here. Time is up.